You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Our Father, we're grateful that you have brought us together on this Lord's Day, and thank you for feeding us already with the preaching of your word and, and Lord, the communion of the saints that we, in the great mystery of, of the gospel, get caught up in your own very life. And I pray that you will help us in this class today um, to continue on in a deeper understanding and appreciation for uh, these creedal formulary, formularies that have been left by by um, by those fathers of the church. And so, Lord, I pray that you help us today, help the teacher especially. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, uh, welcome everybody. So my, my goal today is to work through um, what you might think of as the second part of the second part of the creed, right? So the creed's broken down into three constituent parts of basically triune and formulation. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty. That's the first article of the creed. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ. This is the second article of the creed. And then we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, is then the third article of the creed, which we will do uh, next week. Now, but, with, but if you even think about it from the standpoint of the way in which the Nicene Creed is formulated, um, the, the heaviest bulk of the material um, is given to this second article of the creed, and it's kind of broken down into two constitutive parts. Last week, we dealt with the first part of that, which is um, the creed's uh, uh, desire to articulate in a faithful way what the primacy of Jesus Christ is all about. Well, what does it mean that Jesus Christ is supreme? And what's the language that's necessary and important to describe that kind of primacy? Because there were options, philosophically speaking, during the day to come to terms with the relationship between the Son and the Father that were available to the early church fathers that might have actually been more palatable in that philosophical moment in time. Say, a, a kind of gradation of divinity, uh, working in some understanding of intermediary divine figures. Um, and, and by the way, if you read, for example, like Philo of Alexandria, or some other intertestamental um, period uh, uh, Jewish thinkers, the notion of semi-divine figures is not out of par even with a certain aspect of Judaism. I mean, I think that can come as a surprise uh, to people. So, for example, there is a, there's a Jewish scholar, he's not a Christian, a Jewish scholar named Daniel Boyarin, who's written a, a couple of books uh, talking about the kind of Trinitarian, and I use that term very loosely, but the kind of Trinitarian framework um, for understanding the being of God as a plurality of personhoods, even within the, within the sort of uh, intellectual milieu of Judaism itself. I think that comes as a surprise to folks. Um, there's another book that was published by a Princeton University Press by a scholar named Schaefer, I believe, um, talking about some of these uh, intertestamental figures who thought about divine beings on some sort of gradated scale moving from God to semi-divine figures that mediated divinity from God uh, to humanity. All to say, that was a legitimate and, and, and a kind of bona fide 
philosophical option for the church fathers. And it's actually the way that Arius, who we now sort of identify as heretic number one, but that's actually the way that Arius went. And it's conceivable and understandable given Arius's moment in time. So the, the, the driving thread and theme of our time together, at least what I'm trying to communicate in this course is, well, what would lead the church fathers to this conclusion? And this is the conclusion that we have within, I think, the creed itself. Number one, Jesus Christ is perfect creatureliness. That's important. He is perfected humanity. Um, and this, by the way, and I'll, I don't want to lose you here in sort of theology land, but this becomes a challenge even after the formulation of the Nicene Creed in the 4th century. In other words, the Nicene Creed is going to establish these two realities as, as something that is a constitutive of Christian orthodoxy. Number one, Jesus is, is perfect creatureliness. And number two, Jesus is perfected divinity as well without any diminution. So whatever can be said about God the Father and His divine being and essence, whatever can be said about God the Father must be equally said about the Son. There's no sort of gradation or subordination between the Father and the Son when it comes to that particular core of divine essence. So He's perfect creatureliness and perfect divinity. That was the formulation that Nicaea left us with. Um, two quick things on this. Number one, why did they get there? I want to turn back to this. But they got to that formulation, I believe, because of the internal pressure of the Bible itself. I'm going, to, I'm going to come back to that. I'll table that for a second. But the other thing to recognize is this too created its own kind of problem. In other words, just because people affirmed Nicene Orthodoxy and could say this creed that we say every Eucharist Sunday, just because people could say that creed didn't mean that all of the... Um, theological problems had been resolved because you go to then the 5th century, one century later, and now you have another council that arises which we view as a, as a Catholic and an authoritative council, the Council of Chalcedon, where now they're having to wrestle with this question. If Jesus is perfect creatureliness and if Jesus is perfected divinity without any diminution, if that is the case, and both of those are equally true, then how do we understand Jesus Christ as a single subject? How do we understand Jesus Christ not as some sort of schizoid who's now in one page of the Bible is working according to his human nature? And then on another page of the Bible, he's working according to his divine nature. There was a controversy that arose from um, a really uh, significant thinker in this Nicene period named Apollinarius who understood that the, that the body of Jesus became a kind of placeholder for the divine being of God, which was really not, was, which was only located in what? In the mind of Jesus. So Jesus had an earthly body, but he had a divine mind, right? That was, that was the way in which Apollinarius could sort of resolve this problem. I'm not, I won't chase this rabbit. I'll just let you know that's not the right way to think about it, right? Um, so what, what does Chalcedon say now in the 5th century when it talks about perfected creatureliness and full divinity? What does, nice, what does Chalcedon say? Chalcedon says you don't place any verbs on the, human, uh, on the natures of Jesus. In other words, we don't talk about the human nature of Jesus suffered on the cross. 
or the divine nature of Jesus was what raised from the dead. We never use verbs on the natures. We only use verbs on the single subject who is Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man. Right? Um, so I'm, I'm, and I'm not saying, by the way, that Chalcedon resolved all the problems because when you get into the Reformation period and you see Calvin and Bootser and Melanchthon and Zwingli all debating on the Eucharist, which ended up causing some significant problems a century after them as far as military problems. But when you see them debating the Eucharist, how do we understand what's happening when you take the bread and drink the wine? All of that stems back to how each of these different figures are wrestling with the implications of Chalcedon from the 5th century. So all, all to say, doctrine in the life of the church is alive and dynamic, and just because creeds are received doesn't, and even affirmed doesn't mean that all the controversies and all the misunderstandings are staved off. There's a constant sort of re-giving of ourselves to these matters. In what way, though? And this is what I think the fathers leave us. How do we give ourselves again and again to wrestling with these complex but yet very important dynamics? The answer, we do that by a constant giving of ourselves to the Bible. So, so think about perfect creatureliness and, and, and perfect divinity. And even, by the way, saying perfect divinity is kind of a... That's a stupid way of phrasing that, but um, just divinity. That, that by the very nature of the thing itself is perfect. But um, so you have perfect uh, creatureliness and divinity. Where is that coming from in the scriptures? Well, we could talk about this all morning, but I'm, again, this is just introduction. Perfect creatureliness in the book of Hebrews is crucial to the whole logic of that book of the Bible. If you spent time in the book of Hebrews, you understand this. Jesus Christ, who became a little lower than the angels. Here, here the author to the Hebrews reads Psalm 8 and applies it to Jesus of Nazareth. He becomes man for a little while. And why does he do this? Hebrews chapter 4, he does this so that he can, and this is, I'm quoting Hebrews here, learn obedience in the school of human suffering. He learns obedience in the school of suffering. And why does he learn obedience in the school of human suffering? And this is the big timpani role that you're moving in the book of Hebrews, so that he can be a fitting high priest for you. Um, now, I, again, we're going we're to circle back to this before the morning is over. But the humanity of Jesus that he assumes, which we'll talk about here in a few minutes, but the humanity of Jesus that he assumes is not something that he divested himself of of now that he's ascended back to the Father. Now, I can't, I'm not going to try to give you a sort of physics account of how all this works. It's, it's beyond my comprehension. But I just want you to know your salvation and my salvation depend on the fact that Jesus, your high priest, intercedes for you to the Father by the Spirit in his humanity right now. He's a human being now. That's, that, our salvation is crucial to that. That's what, that's where the book of Hebrews is going. He's a high priest for you because he knows your frame. And I, again, I, I won't chase this, but I, th there are various sort of seasons in my own spiritual life where this doctrine surface, surfaces um, to be uh, uh, extremely pastoral for me. I mean, I, it just it helps me uh, to remember that Jesus knows in the words of the psalmist that our frame is just dust. He knows what it is to experience abandonment by God. He knows what it is to experience temptation to sin. He knows what it is to experience deprivation. He knows what it is to experience hunger. He knows you just start rolling out 
the human experiences that mark our suffering and mark our concrete reality in this world, and Jesus Christ knows those experiences. Yet, He did not sin. And because He did not sin, He intercedes for you to the Father in His humanity um, as your Savior, as your Redeemer, as your Reconciler, and as your Priest. That's very crucial to the Gospel. When, when uh, Andrew was asking this morning in the sermon, it's so, so, so well put, what do we mean when we talk about the Gospel? This is central to it. The Gospel, the Incarnation, Jesus becoming a man, is central. So you have that in the book of Hebrews. It is crucial for Jesus to be a human being, a real human being, not a phantom not a kind of ghost-like figure, but a bona fide human being. The way I say it to my students at, at Tabishan when I'm, you know, being silly is we're talking about somebody who, um, you know, bought falafel at the falafel stand and liked a good shawarma every once in a while. All right. I mean, I, I don't know if they did that back then. I don't think they did. Um, um, but he did that. Um, he knew what it was to eat. He knew what it was to weep. He knew what it was to be tired. You see that in the Bible. I'm tired. I need to sleep. Matter of fact, apparently he was so tired he didn't even wake up in the middle of a storm. I mean, these are all very human aspects of Jesus' perfect creatureliness that Arius, by the way, the heretic, would read and take in a very different direction. He would read that and take that to a necessarily diminutive view of Jesus' divine status. The church fathers in the 4th century would take that to say, don't you see, he became a human for you. It's for your salvation that he did this. Because equal to his perfect creatureliness is also his full divinity. And I won't go through all the texts, but you know them. Just I mean, we can just rattle them off. John 1, um, Philippians chapter 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6, Colossians 1, 1 through 15, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and the list goes on and on. And if I can sort of press into this from one other aspect that we might not talk about enough, it's not just these kind of doctrinal formulations that you have in the Bible. Philippians chapter 2, he handed over him the name that's above every name. Um, or John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Those are kind of doctrinal formulations. We, we get that, and we receive that. But we also follow Jesus in the narrative patterns of the Gospel. We see what Jesus says and what Jesus does in his life. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Jesus is doing things from beginning to the end of His public ministry that lead to no other conclusion than this person shares in the identity of Israel's God. And that's what offended the Pharisees more than anything else. Who does He think He is that He can forgive sins? No one forgives sins but the Father, but God. He can't forgive sins. Or the winds and the waves recognizing the voice of their Creator and stopping. Or coming to the tomb of Lazarus to see when Jesus says to weeping Mary and Martha, I am resurrection, I am life. And that's a claim about Jesus' own divine status. And say, so, well, it's enough for you. I mean, it's one thing for you to say that. Then what does Jesus do? He says Lazarus comes forth and he shows that he is the one who has the power over life and death. All of that stuff that we see in Jesus' life and ministry is only as unique to God himself. Human beings don't do those kinds of things. So that's where I think the internal pressure of the Bible leaves the Nicene Fathers with this necessary conclusion. Perfect creatureliness and, and perfected or full divinity without any remainder for both of them. 
And we'll let those tensions stand even where we can't always resolve in our own minds how to reconcile the two of those. We have to affirm them both equally and fully. So that's the first part of the second part of the creed. All right. Um, here's the second part of the second part of the creed, which is what I'm supposed to lecture on this morning. All right. So let me read it to you. Um, for us and for our salvation, he came down for he- from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. Um, The economy of expression here is actually rather remarkable. I mean, just think about it. In one brief paragraph, we get from the um, immaculate conception all the way to the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's a lot of ground covered in a short amount of space. Which means, by the way, things are left out. And that's worth talking about. Okay, this is, this is not, this is not a sufficient statement of the totality of the kingdom of God in Christ. But it is a necessary one, I believe. So let me, let me work through some of these uh, phrases with you. Now, the first one. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. What about the virgin birth? Um, what is the virgin birth telling us about the birth of Jesus Christ? It's telling us many things. But one thing we see for sure is that the birth of Jesus is no ordinary birth. Conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, there, there are some, you can Google this, some famous icons from the East um, that will show uh, sort of Mary... And um, I mean, I don't know, uh, oh, Dr. Charlie, you could help us with this, but well, some sort of tube coming to Mary. Uh, this, is, this is not medically precise. Some sort of tube coming to Mary from some depiction of the Holy Spirit, and there's a little, there's a little um, infant sort of going through the tube, right? I mean, that, 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 that iconography is out there. And it's crude. It's not the stuff you're going to hang in your dining room, you know, in your dining room. Uh, but it's getting at something rather profound and mysterious. Um, here, here is this young woman who has not known a man. Now, of course, this takes on its own life in Roman Catholic theology in ways that I don't necessarily follow. But the importance of Mary and Mary's role in the bringing of the Son of God into the world is significant. You know, there are some significant debates, for example, in the early church that even go up into this current day. I've got. I have family members who don't like this kind of language, but you, you know it's very important for the Nicene fathers and those those that go into Chalcedon in the fifth century to affirm Mary as Theotokos, which is translated God bearer. I mean that, that's a that's a pretty important title for Mary, and it's right again because we're affirming here the fact that the Word John one fourteen became flesh. And he became flesh by the power of the Holy Spirit. In, in Karl Barth's description of the virgin birth, he, he, he has the virgin birth under the larger sub, uh, subheading, the miracle of Christmas. It's great. It's, it's, that, that's, a, that's the proper way of understanding this. Something miraculous is going on um, in this coming to be of Jesus of Nazareth. The Holy Spirit is involved in this. But also a woman is involved in this. Um, and I won't, again, I'll just sort of, I'll leave this for you to sort of think about, but 
you know, we see sort of Adam Christ typology in the Bible. We have the first Adam who fell, and then we have the second second Adam in Christ. Well, there is a kind of I think there is a kind of Eve typology that's going on as well with Mary. Uh, so I, I will say I think in some of our instincts to be robustly Protestant, and I have this deep in my bones, by the way, but in our sort of move to be robustly Protestant and anti any kind of Marian theology that views her as a co-redemptrix, who, who, who here comes from a Roman Catholic world? Well, so you, this sort of like, this sort of spirituality of Mary being co-redeemer, I, I mean, I think that stuff's heretical. I mean, I think that's bad, all right? But in an effort to sort of lean against that, I think we've, we've maybe swung too far. Mary's role is very, very significant. And I think the Eve typology, the sort of new Eve in Mary, is actually quite, quite important. So all to say, Mary it conceives by the power of the Holy Spirit for what purpose? So that Jesus of Nazareth um, comes into the world as God becoming man. And that's what you have here in this creed. And was made uh, man. Uh, John chapter 1, verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So let's think about this for a second. And this, these are the kind of plates that you have to spin when you're dealing with Christian theology because there are rocks to crash on. So was there ever a time when the Son of God was not? Nicaea, in the first half of the second article of the Creed, says, No. Begotten, not made, of one substance with the Father. There was never a time when the Son was not. But then we, and again, this gets real tricky. I get, I understand that gets tricky. But at least from our human temporal perspective, understanding that God experiences time in ways that differ from us, okay? But from our standpoint of human experience of time, can we say, but there was a time when when the Son was not a man? And the answer to that is yes, and necessarily so. He took on flesh. That's that act of humility and self-giving. In the late 19th century, there was lots of theological debates that really had a huge impact, by the way, on Anglican theology in England, on, um, on what the significance is of and here's the fancy term of kenotic theology. Kenosis is the term that's used in Philippians 2 that talks about the self-abnegation of the Son. What, is it, what, 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 did, what did the Son deprive Himself of when he, took, when he became a man? Did He deprive Himself of His divinity? Did He take a sort of a lower level of divinity or a lower level of glory? I mean, these were big debates in late 19th century um, uh, uh, especially English-speaking theology, and I, th- I think, and this is my, my, I was gonna, I feel pretty strongly about this, that when Philippians 2 talks about the self-abnegation of the Son, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but what? Took on the form of a servant. What is, what is the um, self-giving that the humility that the Son does in the divine economy, I think Philippians is saying, not in any way a diminution of His own divinity, but He took on flesh. The mere fact that God becomes a man is an act of self-giving and an act of self-humiliation for the sake of the redemption of the world. He became man. Now, I think this is really important. It's important theologically. I, was, I happened to get up early this morning because I thought my basement was going to flood, and so I had some time to think about this. Um, and the basement almost did flood. It was one of those weird... I told, I told my wife, I said, you know what? 
God was involved in our house this morning. We, I, I, we have, never mind. I'm, I'm going to say this story. All to say, went down there and my sump pump was not working. I was like, uh, Houston, we got trouble. So it's, it's fine now. Um, so I had some time to think about this morning and pulled off, I think, one of the better books on a sort of exposition of the Nicene Creed by T.F. Torrance called The Trinitarian Faith. And so I was working through that this morning, and he, he was talking about this aspect of the creed right here, saying it was so important to fourth century theology to understand that it was the whole person of Jesus Christ where our salvation is located. His whole person. So that when we think of the atoning work of Jesus, we think in terms of both, yes, the incarnation and the atoning work that He did on the cross, but we see those as a single piece. He became man. If I can use this in terms of my own sort of Reformation theological training, we think of this in in these terms. Jesus lived for us both in His active obedience and His passive obedience. And I meant to bring Torrance to read to you this morning, and I forgot walking out the door. But But he says it's important for us to think about Fourth century atonement, how we understand our salvation in terms of Trinitarian Nicene faith. This is very practical, if I can put it this way. Why? Because our salvation, again, depends on Jesus being fully God and being fully man. And in His whole person, the fact that He is holiness for us when we are unholiness. He is faithfulness for us. He was that in His life, in His ministry, when we were unfaithful. He was obedient to the law in its perfection and fullness, knowing full well that we're never obedient to the law in its perfection and in its fullness. Think about even our own liturgy here when when we're told Sunday in and Sunday out, hear hear the, hear the, the law of the Lord, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And what do we say immediately in response to that? Christ have mercy upon us, right? We recognize the fact that we're not law keepers in that way, but He was. And so, especially as we enter into Lent, I think this is maybe a good Lent thought for us, to think about the whole person of Jesus Christ being the means of our salvation, His life and His death. Not to play one over against the other, but to see those two aspects of Jesus' life, His active obedience and then His passive suffering for us on the cross as both constitutive of one saving dynamic, the whole person of Jesus Christ. Padilla! Sure. Yes. <laughs> the debate is whether or not the, the the debate is how do we understand original sin as it okay so the the issue is whether or not Jesus is sinless of course he is sinless but how does sinlessness relate to the to original sin if Jesus Christ took on human flesh um, and this is a this is a highly sort of controversial theological topic. It's funny you mention it. I was reading Torrance on it this morning. And obviously Torrance in the kind of Bardian tradition understands that Jesus takes on human fallen nature. Um, so the nature of Jesus' humanity is the fact that it is fallen and under the curse. 
But we still, I think, have to have sort of embedded in that a recognition that even though Jesus took on a human fallen nature, which by the very nature of the fact meant that he was under judgment in his humanity, that he did so in such a way as not to be sinful. And that's, I think, the tension that we have to live in on this. And that's why you and whenever you have tension theologically, and we always will, people will tend to elevate one side of the tension over against the other. And that's why we have these sort of theological differences between various traditions. So if you catch me on, you know, on Monday to Wednesday, I'm going to affirm, you know, the importance of Jesus taking on a fallen nature with all of the kind of negative ramifications that we might think go along with that. But on the other times, I'm going to stop and think, but then what does that mean when it comes to original sin? And, and what does that mean with Jesus' culpability as a sinner if he was, if he knew no sin? It means, so th- I'll just say those are, those are the tensions that I think we're left with. Good question. And you can't ask any more today. Um, oh, yes, okay. Does the Catholic Church explain this with the Immaculate Conception of Mary? Is that addressed? I mean, I think that's... I th- Well, I think um, Mary's sinlessness is, the, is part of the, is the means by which the Catholic Church can affirm that Jesus' human nature did not have original sin. And it's important to a sort of larger theological piece. And I'm, I'm sympathetic to the theological tradition that doesn't break out in hives over that question. Because I think, again, we're affirming perfect creatureliness with, this, with the sinful judgment that comes along with that kind of humanity and perfect divinity both fully recognized. So I, I, I do think that the Catholic Church forces themselves into a corner on this in ways that I'm not sure the Bible demands for us to do. But I'll have to say... This is Bart's influence on me, okay, so I'm laying all my cards on the table. This is a highly contentious position, and there are those even within my own Reformation tradition who would be doing backflips over what I just said. So I'll, I'll say that. Yeah. Well, Bray doesn't even say that it should translate as a virgin. It should say, according to Bray, that it's just... Gerald Bray? Yeah. Says that, that she's just a young woman. That's what the Hebrew word is. Oh, Gerald. He, well, that's not very helpful. I'll talk to him about that tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. Mark, you talk about the fourth century theologians. Yeah. A lot has come and gone since then. Yes. Luther, Calvin, Barth, you name it. Yeah. Is our theology today better than theirs or just different? Uh, that is, I love that question. Um, and this is another kind of question that exercises. Um, theologians in different ways depending on the tradition that they're in. So, for example, I have some I have some colleagues that are confessional Lutherans. I mean, they when they when they were ordained, I was at one of their ordinations. When he was ordained, he affirmed the Augsburg Confession and the Formula of Concord, not as that which defines our particular denominational identity, but that which is Catholic Christianity. All right. That's a kind of Lutheran instinct, that's a conservative Lutheran instinct, basically to understand that those documents that were born out of the 16th, I mean, the 16th and early 17th century are Catholic, is Catholic Christianity, period. That's not a Reformation sort of Calvin tradition instinct, and I would, I would think I'd put the Anglican tradition on this side as well, in the sense that the, the, the task of continuing to do creedal, confessional reflection on the basis of the authority of Holy Scripture is an ongoing dynamic. 
Now, I will say that I think we have particular challenges theologically on the far side of modernity that someone like Calvin and Luther weren't even aware of. And that, that's what's really important to me is that we recognize where we're located in time and we have to deal with theology in the given accommodated moment that we're in. And that requires ongoing work. So I, I do think of theology as an alive and dynamic discipline that's both under the authority of Scripture and the tradition of the church. But of course, it's the, the, the Scriptures that can trump tradition on these things. And that's where the dynamic occurs. Where problems arise, I think, is when people tend to think of theology and theologizing as kind of a me, Jesus, and my Bible approach to theology that doesn't take into account that the church has been wrestling with this stuff now for 2,000 years. And that means that the task is really enormous. You all, I'm a broken record on Karl Barth. And by the way, I'm more critical of him now than ever. I have some mean things to say about him. I'm not going to now. Um, so I'm more critical of Bart than ever, but why I think I'm so drawn to him is here's a figure, mid-20th century, who is wrestling with these three facets um, that I think are so important to the Christian theological tradition. Number one, and the priority, Bart gives himself to Holy Scripture from beginning to end. Scripture is the authoritative, governing logic of all Christian theology. But he also gives himself to the tradition of the church in ways that are really, and he gets it wrong at times, but kind of blow your hair back. How can a man read all of that? He didn't, by the way. Um, he had some people helping him. But how, how can someone engage all of that? So, so when you get into Christological controversies, you have 30 pages of small print going all the way from, you know, um, Athanasius in the 4th century to, I don't know, Lux Mundi in the late 19th century. He's doing all of it. And then he also recognizes how philosophy and the history of Western ideas have wittingly or unwittingly influenced the way in which we've done theology. Now, the medieval period's wrapped up in Aristotelian dynamics for the way in which they think about doing theology. The early church fathers, I don't think they're driven by Platonic ideas, but they really need Platonic categories to try to make sense of what they're doing. And, and that, that takes a lot of work. So all to say... I think of theology, whether it's better or not, maybe that's not, maybe the, quali the qualitative ways is not the way of thinking about it, but, but it's necessary for the church today to not engage the discipline as if we're the first ones doing it. I think that's important. So that's where, that, that, that might be the arbiter of what's good or bad theology. That's good. Woo! Any other questions? Doctor, yes? Yes, but I've not read on it. But yes, they have, I think. As a matter of fact, this group, um, the BioLogos group that you have that are thinking through implications of creation and evolution as this applies to Christian theology and even the humanity of Jesus through the Genome Project, um, is it Francis um, Collins, I believe, and others are thinking about these things in theological terms. And I, I find their work really fascinating. I'll have to say it's way beyond my pay grade. Because um, I do find the whole human genome project completely interesting, but it's I'm, I'm worse than an amateur. I'm, you know, I'm playing with finger paints on this stuff. But um, but there are theologians thinking about those questions. All right, I'm praying, and you're going to leave. Uh, is it time? Yep. Uh, so, Lord, uh, in your mercies, I pray that you will help us again to appreciate the depth and profundity of of your word that's revealed to us in your Son and. And Lord, the thing I want to thank you for this morning, especially with this creed, 
is that you gave yourself wholly to us, to humanity. Um, we're, we're, we're really talking about what seem to be very abstract and sort of complicated matters of theological minutiae. I can imagine anyone on the sidewalk just thinking that even the com- overhearing our conversation today thinking this is such such minutia. This is all in-house talk. And while it is that, Lord, we recognize that what this creed is affirming and proclaiming is that all this minutia talk was for the sake of our salvation. Um, you, you entered into our world and your son for the sake of redeeming us. And as it says here, Lord, we know that you suffered under Pontius Pilate. You, you, were, you were here in time. You're not some mythopoetic uh, creation of our minds and our fancy, but you walked on this earth. You entered into our mess. And then you went to the cross to die our death, and you, you uh, arose from the dead. And now you sit at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, knowing that you're going to come and gather us again to yourself. All of this, Lord, which is so lofty and beyond our ability to really articulate in any finalized way, all of it attests to your deep and radical love for your world and for your people. And so let that be something that we're left with as we recite this Nicene Creed next Sunday. We're going to do it together. We're going to recite the Nicene Creed next Sunday. And let us get a sense of this for us and for our salvation. You, God, entered into our world to redeem us and to bring us into your own very life. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.